Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today we will once again shine a light on the global fight to end modern slavery. This could be my last legislative hearing as chairman, and of all the work that we've done together on this committee, the fight against modern slavery stands out. I am proud that Senator Menendez and I worked to pass legislation with the entire committee establishing the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery that has finally launched a truly global effort to end it with major contributions from the United States, the United Kingdom, and now private donors and others. Uh, I will say that amount has now reached over $110 million in a global public-private partnership, uh, something that I think this committee and our country uh, should be very proud of. All of the senators on this committee have helped to lead this work, and we are hopeful that what we have done will make a big difference in the lives of so many people who suffer in bondage throughout the world. As I turn the gavel over to my successor here in the next few weeks, I only ask that you all continue to carry on this fight with us and those who are appearing before us today on this committee. And I know John is very committed to this effort and has been involved personally for many, many years in the same effort. Our time this morning will be short. We have another commitment at 11 o'clock. I know that Senator Menendez and I uh, both want to be there before it begins uh, for many reasons. And so we probably will cut this hearing a little bit short to make sure that occurs. We have two distinguished panels. We welcome first Ambassador John Richmond, who was just sworn in by Secretary Pompeo as the new ambassador at large to monitor and combat trafficking in persons. Uh, again, we thank you for your commitment to this effort for a lifetime and what you're bringing to this office. We're thankful uh, for the important role you will play in continuing U.S. leadership to eliminate, eliminate slavery wherever it is occurring around the world. Our second panel, uh, we're pleased to welcome Natalie Grant uh, and Shauna Beta Blaw. As one of our state's most talented singer-songwriters, Natalie needs no introduction except to say that as part of her personal calling, she has been a tireless leader in the battle against modern slavery. Shauna equally has been a powerful voice for workers' rights and in the movement to end all forms of modern slavery, especially forced labor. Welcome back, Shauna. With that, I ask Senator Menendez, my friend, if he wishes to offer any opening comments. I do, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, since I believe this will be your last hearing, uh, let me thank you for your dedication to this issue. I believe it's a legacy item for you and fitting and appropriate. I think all of us on the committee recognize that without your clarity of vision about confronting the pure evil that is modern slavery, it would never have received the amount of attention it truly deserves, both in this body and I believe as a policy and mission of the State Department. You've been a great partner on this issue. Your leadership will be sorely missed, but we will try to keep the flame uh, burning uh, as... as uh, I have no doubt you will keep a flame burning. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we won't torch anything along the way, so... Uh, let me... <laughs> okay. Uh, this is one of the reasons I'm going to miss you. Uh, human trafficking in the form of sexual exploitation, forced labor, and forced marriage is a moral stain on our collective conscious and one of the greatest challenges of our time. The International Labor Organization estimates that as of 2016, over 40 million people were victims of human trafficking around the world, 10 million of whom were children. Despite efforts by the United States and steadfast and dedicated individuals and organizations, exploitation of the less powerful continues. 
40% of these victims were subjected to forced labor in the private sector, coerced or threatened into making electronics, clothing, and food that are traded across borders and end up on store shelves across our country. An additional 4 million trafficking victims were forced to work by their governments, governments that should be protecting and empowering the most vulnerable members of society instead of exploiting their sweat and toil. It's estimated that forced labor alone generates over $150 billion in profits annually, making it the second largest income source for international criminals next to the drug trade. Sadly, it still remains far too profitable for traffickers to trap innocent people striving for a better life in labor or sexual exploitation. Ending modern slavery demands a multifaceted, thoughtful response from businesses, foreign governments, and civil society. Ending modern slavery also requires strategic policies from this administration, rather than policies that effectively provide opportunities for traffickers. President Trump's unconscionable immigration policies, separating children and parents, forcing undocumented workers underground, making victims of violence fearful of law enforcement officials, are putting people at greater risk for abuse, forced labor, and human trafficking. Many trafficking victims fear that they may be at risk for deportation, even if they are working legally in the United States, are now too frightened to call the police, report labor abuses or sexual assault to other authorities. Calls to the National Human Trafficking Hotline have fallen. So these are just some of the issues I look forward to discussing with Ambassador Richmond. I ask that in the interest of time, my full statement be included in the record, Mr. Chairman. Without objection, and thank you so much, our first witness, is Ambassador John Richmond, our newly sworn in head of the State Department's Trafficking in Persons. Uh, we've, you've been introduced now about four times uh, this morning. Again, we thank you for your service, and if you will go ahead with your testimony, we'd appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, members of the committee, uh, it's my pleasure to appear before you today. I have a tremendous amount of respect for this committee and the work you've done to shine a light on this important issue. I'd also like to thank the two witnesses that will appear on the second panel for their contributions to this movement. I've only been in my new position for a little over a month, uh, but I am excited about the team at the State Department's expertise, um, and I have hit the ground running. Uh, with that estimated 24.9 million people trapped in modern slavery around the world today, one could feel paralyzed by the enormity of the crime. But I think it's important to step back and remember how far we've come. The modern anti-trafficking movement launched globally uh, just 18 years ago with the passage of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act followed by the United Nations Palermo Protocol. And as we approach the 20th anniversary, we must recognize the tremendous successes that we have achieved so far. 173 nations have now ratified the United Nations Palermo Protocol. Government statutes criminalizing human trafficking have increased from just 33 in 2003 to 158 in 2016. Understanding has increased on the importance of victim-centered and trauma-informed approaches and not punishing trafficking victims for the crimes their traffickers required them to commit. Finally, the anti-trafficking community itself has grown exponentially. We now see new stakeholders taking action, including survivor leaders, the private sector, investigative journalists, and academics. And in part, due to these achievements, understanding of the realities of trafficking around the world continues to grow. 
and yet needs continue to outpace the resources. Traffickers rake in huge profits while facing little risk of being held accountable. We lack quality data on sector-specific prevalence and on the impact of the field's anti-trafficking efforts. We lack sufficient global resources to combat this crime. And in many places, governments still lack the capacity and even the political will to combat trafficking effectively. One critical tool in eliminating these gaps is the effective use of partnerships, known to be a force multiplier in the anti-trafficking field. And the partnership I'd like to discuss in detail today is the Executive Legislative Partnership to Combat Trafficking. Bipartisan leadership in Congress has played an enormous role in raising the profile of human trafficking, beginning with the passage of the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And today, our most high-profile and significant programs owe their existence to leaders in Congress who had the vision to see real change. Let me mention just a few. The Trafficking in Persons Report itself, mandated in the original Trafficking Victims Protection Act in 2000, has become a symbol of United States global leadership on trafficking. The recommendations outlined in the report form the backbone of our year-round diplomatic engagement. And as I understand it, many in Congress use the recommendations to inform their engagement with foreign leaders. This alignment holds great potential for further impact, and I look forward to working with this committee to continuously refine the report's effectiveness as a diplomatic tool. The United States Advisory Council on Human Trafficking is another congressionally created initiative that has become integral to anti-trafficking work of the federal government. The Council is comprised of survivor leaders appointed by the President who provide input on federal anti-trafficking policies and programs. And in my short time at the Department of State, I've already met with the Advisory Council, and I look forward to their next report. Another instrumental program is the Child Protection Compact Partnerships. Due in large part to the, to the efforts of former Senator Barbara Boxer, this program represents a unique foreign assistance and diplomatic tool that actually requires foreign governments to invest in their own anti-trafficking programs. And to date, the Trafficking in Persons Office has used this program to form partnerships with four governments, Ghana, Jamaica, Peru, and the Philippines. And they are showing positive initial results. And finally, thanks to the leadership of Chairman Corker and the support of the members of this committee the, and the Appropriations Committee and many others, the program to end modern slavery has been funded with a total of $75 million to date. And this groundbreaking public-private partnership seeks to pair funding with a metrics-based approach, including extensive monitoring and evaluation, with the goal of measurably reducing the prevalence of human trafficking. To date, $46 million has been awarded under this program to the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery, and $4 million to the University of Georgia's Research Foundation. One key component of the program is leveraging additional resources, including 20 million pounds already contributed by the United Kingdom. If executed well, the program to end modern slavery could have a massive, measurable impact on this global crime. And I mention these important initiatives not just to commend Congress, I mention them to, because they exemplify the potential for progress when the executive branch works hand in hand with the legislative. We are hopeful that lawmakers will continue to make this issue a priority and to champion it and to make sure critical resources are available. I also encourage members to travel 
and when you travel to raise the issue of trafficking in persons with your counterparts and other governments. I would like to have an open and regular dialogue. In short, I want to be partners with you in this fight because I'm confident that together, through a sustained, focused, and strategic effort, we can stop traffickers, care for survivors, and bring an end to systemic human trafficking. I look forward to your questions. Thank you for that great testimony, and I'll defer, as always, to Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador, uh, uh, we're glad to see that you're one of the few that have made it to the committee and actually got confirmed, so we're, we're, we're grateful for your work. Uh, I agree with you that when the executive and legislative branch work together, we are a more powerful force in this regard. So let me turn to the Trump administration's policy on notices to appear. Uh, now applied even to humanitarian visas, TU and VAWA, has made applying for a T visa risky for trafficking victims. Uh, experts anticipated the number of T visa filings to drop uh, in light of the administration's policy. In addition, experts report that trafficking victims are far less willing to report to law enforcement, terrified by the administration's anti-immigrant rhetoric. These policies diminish the United States as an anti-trafficking leader in the world. What will you do to curb the damaging NTA policy, which threatens to undo nearly two decades of anti-trafficking progress? Senator, I, I appreciate the question because the T visa program, as well as the continued presence program, these two pillars of the way that we can make sure that victims who are not, who are not lawfully present in the United States who are undocumented um, receive the rights and protections that they are entitled to under the law. The continued presence program offers a, a legal way to stay in the country while the United States continues to investigate the crime, um, allows a work permit while they do that. It can be renewed from year to year as the investigation continues. It's an essential tool of law enforcement, and the issuance of continued presence should be encouraged in every case. The T visa program is unique because unlike the continued presence program, it's a self-petitioning visa, and victims of trafficking should be encouraged to apply for it. Um, it does not require the endorsement of law enforcement in order to be granted, um, although additional benefits may be available. I, I appreciate, I don't mean to interrupt you, but since my time is limited, I appreciate your knowledge of the different visas I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, though, is the concern that those who uh, now have to appear in person may very well be a barrier to seeking the very visas that you so aptly describe are necessary tools. How are we going to mitigate that? Have you talked to the administration? Are you engaged? I know you just got there. Are you going to be engaged in having a conversation that maybe this is a universe that does not necessarily have to be an appearance in person? Senator, I look forward through the interagency process and through working with colleagues um, at the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI as well as the Department of Justice to discuss these issues and to make sure that uh, victims of trafficking are able to receive T visas as well as continued presence. I, I hope you'll make that case. Now, uh, you believe, as I do, I think, that trafficking wherever it takes place and for whatever purposes people are trafficked is something that needs to be fought, right? Absolutely. Regardless of where it takes place? Yes. So you're just recently back from Saudi Arabia, I understand. I am. Uh, Saudi has a horrendous record on human trafficking, particularly as it relates to domestic workers. Uh, they recently beheaded a domestic worker from Indonesia who was convicted of murdering her employer, though allegedly uh, uh, died in defense uh, when she was trying, he was trying to rape her. 
There are 18 Indonesian migrant workers on death row in Saudi, according to press reports, and that's just one of many. Are, are we going to hold the Saudis accountable as well as everybody else? So, Senator, I appreciate the question about Saudi Arabia. Um, it was one of my first trips um, out of uh, serious concerns for their um, implementation of anti-trafficking efforts, not just to protect um, domestic workers, which gets quite a bit of attention, but I was concerned about the lack of sex trafficking prosecutions uh, in the country, as well as internal trafficking that doesn't involve any cross-border movement. Um, I wanted to make sure that I could see for myself what was going on, to meet with officials, to sort of ground truth claims that I had been hearing. And we'll continue that process over the next several months as the ratings period continues to make sure that Saudi Arabia's narrative in the Trafficking in Persons report is grounded in fact and that it's accurate and evidence-based and that their ranking appropriately reflects and what they're And if is. all of those things that you just described, I think you've perfected the State Department's uh, ability to speak at length without giving me a direct answer. Uh, if all of those things apply, will uh, the TIP report uh, show Saudi Arabia to be uh, a country that has a problem in terms of human trafficking? The TIP report will accurately reflect what the conditions are on the ground regarding Saudi Arabia's approach to trafficking. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Rich. Thank you. <clears throat> Ambassador Richmond, thank you for your service, first of all, and your commitment to this important cause. I, I think uh, sometimes in this committee we do have a tendency to politicize everything, and this is a cause that really is not political. There isn't anybody on this committee that can claim to have a stronger feeling about it than any other member of the committee. This is an awful, awful enterprise, and uh, we're all committed to see that, uh, that it be done differently. So in that regard, um, We've, you, the statistics that you've laid out and that we're all familiar with and have read in the TIP reports and, and uh, uh, all that sort of thing, uh, give us the statistics of the problems. I realize you're new on the job. How, how are you going to give us some metrics as to how we're doing? Um, th this is a difficult thing to undertake. Uh, it's a difficult thing to fix, but we really can't do it unless we actually see what's working, uh, what successes we might have. Um, we're all familiar with the, with the usual kinds of things that, uh, that we do. Uh, it seems to me this calls for, for much different approaches than the, than the kinds of things we ordinarily do when we're trying to manipulate a country to, uh, to do things differently uh, when they're doing bad things. What are your thoughts on that? Senator, I, I very much appreciate the question about metrics. I think that it's, it's a critical question. There are a few things that we can do as approaches. Um, and one is to recognize there are different types of metrics. One is we can measure what we're actually doing. That is clear law enforcement data to know how many people are being arrested, how many convictions, what are the sentences. We can also address how many victims have been identified, how many are receiving services. We can measure what's actually occurring. And I think that that can be uh, dramatically improved. The more challenging metric is what is the prevalence of trafficking. And I think that is an area that has plagued this issue for, for many years, and we need to improve upon it. To prove upon it, we're undertaking several initiatives. One is within the um, program to end modern slavery. We're trying to make sure that there is a prevalence estimate, and the University of Georgia Research Foundation, as well as the Global Fund, are working hard to determine how could we have good modeling for prevalence metrics. To do that, I think we have to look deeper than just a countrywide prevalence metric to an industry-specific and geographically restrained prevalence metric, one that's focused on what is the prevalence of domestic servitude in this city. 
or what is the prevalence of agricultural labor that is forced labor, not what is the prevalence of trafficking in the entire country. That'd be like asking what is the prevalence of economic crime when it can vary from securities fraud to a con artist. We want to focus on different types so we can measure against it and determine if our interventions are working. I'd also say that we don't want to stop our work while, while we're waiting on a good prevalence estimate. We don't ask for prevalence estimates in all types of crime. No one asks how many gigabytes of child pornography exist. Instead, we just know that we need to fight against it. No one asks how many kilos of cocaine exist in the world. We just know we need to fight against it. We know that there are victims of trafficking around the globe and here in the United States that need help. And while we're working on better prevalence estimates, we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to restrain the traffickers that are exploiting them. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I think, I think the prevalence estimates are going to be just that, estimates, because the, the, the getting exact metrics or even close to exact metrics are going to be a real challenge because how this flies under the radar and, and frequently uh, is uh, supported and covered up by uh, government agencies that are supposed to be in the job of uh, determining metrics. Thanks for your work. Uh, we look forward over the years to hearing uh, good reports from you. And, and particularly, we want to hear what, what it is we can do that, that works. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Ambassador, first, thank you very much for your willingness to take on this extremely important position. I also want to acknowledge the extraordinary leadership of Senator Corker and Senator Menendez and the members of this committee uh, to uh, make it clear we will not tolerate modern-day slavery, and we're prepared to give you all the tools you need in order to fight that. So I want to take a, uh, my cue from our chairman, who's always very direct with our witnesses, to say I was not satisfied with your response to Senator Menendez. I expect you to be an advocate in regards to this issue. There is a perception out there today that if you are a victim of trafficking and you come forward with law enforcement, and you come forward to seek the T visas, and you're not successful or it's not immediate, that there's a fear that you're going to get a notice to appear and be deported. We need to dispel that at its source today so that we understand that those who have been the subject of trafficking are victims. We need their cooperation with law enforcement. We don't want them to go underground because of fear that they're going to be deported. And we need your office to make that very, very clear in this environment in which immigration issues are certainly far from being a void from politics in this country. So I want to give you another chance to respond to this committee as to your commitment to be the representative on those who have been victimized by trafficking to know that they will be protected here in the United States so that we can, in fact, bring successful legal action against the perpetrators, and we will protect them as we have in the past so that they know that they're safe here in America. Mm. Senator, I, I appreciate the question. I am committed to making sure that the law is is clearly enforced, and the law provides for the trafficking in persons visa, the T visa, and I want to make sure that that, that, that T visa is available to 
anyone who is entitled to it, that people can apply for it, that they're encouraged to apply for it without fear, and be glad to use my role at the Trafficking in Persons Office, my role on the interagency uh, coordinating mechanism that I get to lead, as well as um, conversations with my colleagues and other departments to make sure that individuals can apply for a T visa um, and or receive continued presence without any sort of fear. So will you get back to this committee as to at least what we have been told that there is concern within the, this community that if they cooperate and go forward with law enforcement and they do seek a T visa, that they run a risk today because of other agencies' priorities that there may be a notice to appear for their deportation. Can you assure us that you will advocate on behalf of the victims to make that clear that they're safe here in America? I look forward to a continued conversation with this committee, um, both formally and informally, and make sure that, um, that those concerns are addressed. I will definitely be raising these issues and look forward to making sure that, the, that all the individuals who are, are trafficked in this country, whether they are U.S. citizens or they are without papers, are, are able to uh, avail themselves of all the benefits and services that they're entitled to under the law. It's not quite as clear as I would like to see it. I'll take it and move on. Um, I say that because there are countercurrents here in this country on immigration. And we know the fear factors that are in the community today. We also understand that if victims go underground, we're in trouble. And we need to have an advocate who's going to recognize that those who have been targeted of traffickers are victims. And that's why we pass laws to give them those rights. They're not quite as sophisticated to understand the differential between coming forward to help and a, a notice to appear where they're going to be threatened with deportation. And those who are, who are sophisticated in the system want to protect the trafficker will use that to their advantage to get the victims to go underground and not cooperate with us. I hope you understand that. Senator, I do understand that. I have worked with many trafficking victims, including victims who have received continued presence, victims that I have assisted in getting T visas. I am well aware of the concerns that victims have in the wide variety as they present in, with different personalities, different situations. And there is nothing that, that I will be a part of that is going to serve to protect traffickers. Quite the opposite. We want to hold traffickers accountable and make sure that victims are protected. I look forward to working with you on this. Thank you. Senator Sheehan. Thank you, Ambassador, for being here and for your ongoing work to address this issue. Uh, can you talk about how um, the role of the United States in setting an example for other countries on um, the importance of ending trafficking and how, what that means? Senator, I appreciate the question. In our bilateral relationships, I think the role of the United States um, and the policies and the best practices that we've developed can often be of great benefit in our, our bilateral diplomatic relationships. Um, the fact that the United States has a robust victim protection system, the fact that um, it has been aggressive at prosecuting trafficking, that it's been emphasizing labor trafficking as well as, as sex trafficking, that it wants to f fight trafficking in all its forms, that it wants to make sure that we don't prosecute victims for anything their traffickers require them to do. Um, 
all these um, aspirational goals are being put into place, um, perhaps not as well in every circumstance. We have a lot of room to improve and to grow. But as we um, succeed and have successes, as we have our challenges and failures, we're able to dialogue one-on-one -on -one with countries about each of those and discuss how things can improve in their country as well. So are you concerned about the president's failure to talk about human rights and the signal that that sends to those countries who were trying to get to address human trafficking? S S Senator, I, I know that this administration has been quite vocal in its fight against human trafficking uh, from the earliest days of the administration. I, I understand that. I'm, I'm not asking about the policies of the administration. I'm asking about the president's words, his language that he uses, what he says on the world stage. Senator, the president has used very strong language to condemn human trafficking and to commit his administration to fighting it in all of its forms. He's been very clear that human trafficking is a human rights abuse and that it must end, and that we want to bring the full weight of the U.S. government to bear against traffickers. And does it send a mixed message to those countries that we're trying to get to live up to that standard when, when we fail to take um, action on human rights, rights abuses in other areas? Senator, the office that I get to serve in is focused on human trafficking. Obviously, there are other human rights abuses at play as well, and they're critically important. We want to make sure that all human rights are protected in every country around the world, including the United States. I think a clear message against human trafficking can be a leader in that, in that fight. Well, I will tell you that the, a number of the world leaders who I have met with are very confused sometimes about what our message is on this issue. Um, because of some of the president's statements. I, I want to go back to, and I'm sorry I missed your testimony because as I looked at it, um, you did address the program to end modern slavery in it. But to follow up on Senator Risch's question about metrics, can you talk more specifically about what other metrics you can use to address the effectiveness of the grants that have been awarded most recently um, I appreciate that we can keep the numbers of, you know, how many, how many people participated, what kind of research was done, but, but how do we determine whether it's really effective in getting at the root causes? Senator, again, I appreciate the question about metrics. Monitoring and valuation of our programs is incredibly important. Um, it's an area of growth for this movement. Um, I think for far too long, uh, the anti-track movement Trafficking movement's been driven by passion and emotion as opposed to metrics and data, and we want to move in that direction. There are a number of different uh, monitoring and evaluation tools that we can use. Um, the grants that have been given out or the sub-grants that have been given out by the Global Fund under um, the program to end modern slavery are brand new. Um, it, they may be, in a sense, too early to measure because uh, the, those announcements have just been made. Uh, but there is a measurement component and requirement in each of those. And yeah, I look and forward to I'm a sorry to interrupt. I'm, I'm not trying to be critical here. I'm trying to better understand the kinds of tools that you're using to measure the effectiveness. And I, I you know, I get, I get the numbers and the statistics that we keep, but. But how do, we, how do we address some of those other aspects of this problem? I, I think the key way to, to measure this is to have good industry or sector-specific prevalence estimates to do an intervention and then measure has, that, has the prevalence of trafficking in that area within that economic expression or that sector, has it decreased? And that's what we want to move towards um, in this movement to make sure that our interventions are actually having a direct response right. to stop traffickers and to care for survivors. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
Senator Coons. Um, thank you, uh, Chairman Corker. Uh, I am here for two purposes. One, of course, to question our very capable witness, um, but also to thank you, um, to thank you for your tireless work uh, leading the charge fighting modern slavery, um, for the hard work that you've done uh, that I think has made an enormous difference both here in the Senate and around the world, uh, and to thank you and Ranking Member Menendez uh, for the hard work you've both done to make sure that our um, trafficking in persons reports are substantive and meaningful, that have real metrics and have an impact around the world. I uh, look forward to continuing to work with you after this Congress in, in sustaining uh, your ongoing leadership in this field, and I'm so grateful uh, for your leadership of this committee. It's been remarkable, uh, and I am hopeful um, that we will continue uh, to have uh, good and powerful and regular hearings um, when uh, uh, Chairman Risch uh, takes over the next Congress, and, and that we'll continue to do uh, strong and good things together, but I, I just could not let this hearing pass without thanking you Thank for you. what you've done as Chairman of this committee. Um, so if I could then, Ambassador Richmond, uh, it's of uh, genuine interest, I think, to all of us um, to know uh, more about um, your recent visit to Saudi Arabia. Um, I understand Ranking Member Menendez uh, was focusing on um, the Saudi Kingdom's poor record on human trafficking. Um, it seems important to me um, to know whether or not um, you agree with an argument uh, made by Secretary Pompeo, President Trump, that uh, our relationships with Saudi Arabia um, that are economic in nature are too important um, for us uh, to risk downgrading that alliance uh, by focusing on human rights. In fact, I think uh, Secretary Pompeo has an editorial to that effect today in the Wall Street Journal. Um, do you think promoting human rights is in line uh, with promoting our security interests, um, and how does your office contribute uh, to balancing those two things? I appreciate the opportunity to answer that question, Senator. I think that human rights are the uh, fundamental underlying uh, pillar beneath the anti-trafficking movement and beneath the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. It, it, the entire reason trafficking is wrong is because individuals have inherent value. And traffickers deny them that value, deny them that liberty to work where they want, to get up when they want, to control who touches their bodies. And we need to make sure that their human rights are protected. The Trafficking in Persons Office, where I get to serve now, that I get to lead, uh, will make sure that the recommendations and the narrative regarding Saudi Arabia's approach to trafficking, the efforts that they have taken are clearly identified, um, and that they are ranked accordingly. Our job is to make sure it's a fact-based, evidence-based report um, that we will submit to the, to the Secretary and that President Kent can review. Um, our office is focused solely on that mission, to make sure that as we work with the department, with the ambassadors around the world, um, that we are making sure that the report is um, complete and full of integrity. Well, thank you, Ambassador. My concern, as I'll express uh, here and in other settings, is that uh, our president continues to put uh, economic partnerships, uh, arms sales, ahead of what is a fundamental defining uh, virtue of the American people and republic, which is that uh, we've put values like human rights, as you've articulated, uh, ahead of uh, transactions. Uh, and I think we should continue to do that. Uh, what more could we be doing to engage uh, the private sector, to engage businesses, to take actions against the misuse of forced labor around the world? Senator, I think that there is a great deal that the private sector um, can, can do regarding trafficking, particularly when they look at their supply chains. There have been several um, helpful and promising initiatives internationally regarding supply chains, making sure that companies can vet their supply chains um, several layers deep to make sure there's not forced labor involved. Um, that they can be self-critical in that regard. Um, that effort needs to grow, and we need to make sure that companies that are knowingly engaging 
um, supply chains that, are, that have forced labor in it are held accountable. But we also want to make sure that companies are incentivized to vet their own supply chains to make sure that they can root out forced labor. I think we also need to, to make sure that we understand that even a company of goodwill who wants to make sure there is no forced labor in their supply chain has a very difficult job in doing that. In a sense, we're asking them to do the law enforcement work of a nation, perhaps halfway around the world, that is not doing their own law enforcement work to make sure that there are not forced laborers in those factories, in those facilities. And we want to make sure that um, countries around the world are able to protect their citizens and to protect others who are working there to make sure that they're not subjected to forced labor by traffickers. Well, Ambassador, um, I think one of the most powerful tools we have in the work against uh, human trafficking, against forced labor, uh, is engaged uh, and empowered uh, constituents, consumers, um, citizens of this country um, who purchase huge amounts of products uh, from companies that have supply chains that go into some of the most uh, difficult uh, labor environments on earth. And to the extent the faith community, the private sector, uh, the administration and this Congress work together um, to make it easier, to make it uh, more um, based in metrics um, for those who are active, uh, whether because of their faith or because of their value for human rights, uh, to take steps to do so. Um, that's how we make a difference. I look forward to working with you on that important undertaking. Thank, Thank you. Mr. Ambassador, uh, uh, I, I do want to say people on this committee care deeply uh, about human rights and trafficking, and things are a little raw. Uh, right now, um, we have a hearing actually, or an all senators briefing at 11 o'clock, and some of the things around Saudi Arabia certainly have created uh, a little bit of rawness. Some of that is being reflected in questions that are being asked of you, and also some of the immigration issues. I just want to say, uh, as one person, um, having been at your swearing in and uh, knowing of the, the your life commitment to this issue, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, um, I can't imagine having someone more committed to this. Um, and I'm thankful uh, that you're willing to do it. I think that as these people, uh, my friends on this committee, get to know you more closely, in spite of some of the other uh, content that we deal with that sometimes causes us to express ourselves pretty sharply in this committee. My sense is that uh, regardless of what side of the aisle people are on, they're going to be thankful that someone like you is doing this job, and I think they already are. Yes, sir. Mr. Chairman, I agree with you. We look forward to working with the ambassador, but I don't want you to think that the raising of Saudi Arabia or of immigration as a legitimate issue where people have fear of coming forward to use a visa that we intend them to is a political context. I know Senator Risch painted things uh, sometimes politically here. That's a legitimate issue. And I'm not going to stop raising a legitimate issue simply because people want to cast it as political. And I, I in no way am casting it as political. And I plan at 11 o'clock to express myself uh, very strongly as it relates to other issues. I'm just saying that you're here today in the middle of uh, some rawness as it relates to some other issues, and uh, and that's just a fact. But with that, Mr. Chairman, could I uh, get two cents worth in here? Uh, Senator Menendez, if I uh, indicated that to you or was offensive, I apologize for that. But um, look, th this is really a, a nonpartisan issue. This is a bipartisan issue. Uh, president Trump is going to be president for the next 25 and a half months. And uh, for those of us that care deeply about issues like this, and especially Senator Corker, as he has over the, over the years, 
we want to carry that flag forward for Senator Corker, and we want to carry that flag forward for the American people. So it behooves us all to work together, Republicans, Democrats, the President, the Administration. Now, sometimes people say things in political context that, uh, that, are, that do rub the wrong way, but that shouldn't take take our focus off of the ball here of what we're trying to do. I think we've got the right man in, in Ambassador uh, Richmond here. I think we can trust him on this issue. And I think we should continue to work and to meet and to, uh, and, and to explore these issues. And I think Senator Menendez certainly uh, raised issues that, uh, uh, that we should talk about and, and try to take the rough edges off and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and make progress as we move forward. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, if I may. Uh, I totally agree with Senator Rich, who will be the new chairman, that uh, working together, I recognize President Trump's going to be there for as long as his term continues. I did not hesitate to criticize a president of my own party when I thought he was wrong. I'm not going to hesitate to criticize this president when I think he's wrong. I think constructive criticism is also incredibly important to reach a considered judgment on how we move forward on issues. And so I'm not going to pull any punches. I didn't do it with President Obama. And when I was chairman of this committee, I'm not going to intend to do it with President Trump. But I do agree with you that this issue is bipartisan, nonpartisan, and I look forward to working with you on making it continuing uh, legacy of the committee. With that, uh, uh, thank you for coming. Thank you for the work you're doing, and we look forward to seeing you again. And we'll Thanks, call sir. the second panel. Thank you so much. Um, I know that, uh, Natalie, you came in a little bit late. We've already spoken uh, a little bit to the fact that we're thrilled to have both of you here um, and certainly appreciate the personal commitment that both of you have shown around this issue that you can see uh, draws a little emotion here on the, on the committee itself. But we thank you for being here. We know that you've uh, gone to a lot of trouble to be here today and certainly uh, spend a lot of both of you on your personal time and effort around this issue, and it's people like you that calls us to be inspired. So our first witness today is Natalie Grant, the co-founder of Hope for Justice and a hero in the fight against modern slavery. Our second witness is Shauna Baderblaw, the executive director of the Solidarity Center, who is also a leader in this fight. If you both could summarize your comments in about five minutes, we again thank you so much for being here and look forward to, to your comments. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, for inviting me to be here. I'm so honored to be here. And honestly, I woke up this morning thinking, I am going to be so out of my depth. <laughs> this I'm used to a microphone being in my mouth. Um, I sing all the time, and I have no problem speaking. But it's not usually in an environment quite like this. So it really is an incredible honor for me to be here today. Um, <laughs> um, you know, as I was thinking on the plane here, and, and I was listening um, to Ambassador Richmond and I, I see your notes and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I don't even have notes to, to talk about this, but what I do have is just a story. 
I have my own personal story of how this issue has forever wrecked my life. And I never thought that I would say that television changed my life. I never thought I would say Law and Order changed my life, but it truly was an episode of Law and Order that I was watching on a day off from touring when I was home in my home in Brentwood, Tennessee. And they depicted um, a gentleman who had an underage girl in his basement on this television show. And I just remember them always saying that Law and Order was ripped from the headlines. And as I was sitting there in my family room watching this television show, I thought, what headline is this ripped from? This was from 2004. I had never heard the term human trafficking before. And so as I was watching it, I thought, well, this is ridiculous. Why are they trying to convince us that there's people holding people in their basements in the middle of New York City? So I literally Googled, what is human trafficking? And that is the first time that I realized that slavery still exists in this country. I actually came across something called the Trafficking in Persons Report. And I attempted to read it, and I got about two sentences in, and then I stopped. Um, and I, I literally then punched in faith-based organizations that fight human trafficking. Because as a member of a faith-based music community, I was deeply troubled that I had never heard of this issue before. I was deeply troubled that people in the church were not talking about the least of these, which they talk about so often, but that were being ravaged in this way. That's when I found an organization, and to make a long story short, um, a couple of months later, my husband and I flew to India. We landed, in, um, we landed and they took us straight into the red light district. Um, Sorry, I know this is probably not the appropriate place to cry, but I've never, ever been able to speak about this issue in 14 years without weeping. Because I saw children for sale on the street. I met twin five-year-old girls who had to have reconstructive surgery to their tiny little bodies. I saw a six-year-old girl in a cage looking at me through the bars of cage. She wasn't screaming. She wasn't asking for anyone to bring her her freedom. It was almost as if she was resigned to the fact that this was her reality. They allowed us to tour a brothel uh, because they thought that my husband was a potential customer. And as we walked through these tiny little cubicles, some with mattresses on the floor, some with, with beds, I will never forget walking past one that had a rope tied to the end of a bedpost. And I made the mistake of asking why the rope was there. And the gentleman we were with said, that's because the girl in this room is 15 years old. She has an 18-month-old child. There's no child care, so they tether their children to the end of the bed while they're forced to perform their sexual acts. All I can tell you is that I was wrecked that day for life. I knew that in that moment, this issue demanded my attention and my commitment. I didn't know what I was doing when I left there. I flew back to America and thought, well, what, now what do I do? I sing in front of thousands of people every weekend, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get up on that stage and I'm going to tell everybody I know that this is a reality, that this is happening, because if I didn't know about it, chances are most other people didn't know about it either. At that time, I founded an organization called Abolition International. And to be honest with you, my first goal was just to raise enough money to build an aftercare facility for women with children in India. And that's exactly what we did. But what happened in the coming years after that was that I learned about the issue in a deeper way. 
um, I met an organization in England and we merged together and we are now known as Hope for Justice International. And while it says co-founder uh, underneath my name right there, I fear that makes me sound far more important than I am. Um, the organization now is across four continents in eight countries with 22 offices. Last year, we rescued 37,000 children. It's amazing to me the work that the organization is doing, but all I am is a girl who saw children for sale on the street. And in 2004, I was not a mother yet, but now I'm a mother to three daughters. And now this issue is more important to me than ever before. Now I see that though maybe I don't have the power that you have, I have the power of a voice. And if I can tell thousands of other people, listen, it's not up to us to do everything. It's just up to us to do something. Every single one of us can do something. Every single one of us, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what your circle of influence, whether you have a platform or whether you are just serving your family, every single one of us can do something to make a difference. And though I am grateful to get to do it on a large scale, I feel like the greatest difference I'm making is when my twin daughter's sixth grade teacher came to me and said, I was talking about the abolishment of slavery in the classroom today. And one of your twin daughters raised her hand and said, that's not true. Slavery actually still exists in the world today. And I realized that I must be doing something right. <laughs> because though my heart swelled with pride in that moment, it also broke at the same time that my daughters are living in a world where slavery still exists, where someone's daughters, someone's sisters, someone's niece, someone's granddaughter is being ravaged day in and day out. I just say to you that though this issue demands my attention and commitment, I believe that the same must be said of you, that it demands your attention and commitment. I commit my life to Proverbs 31.8, which says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. I have seen those who are crushed. And I say that together we must do whatever it takes to give them justice. Thank you. Incredible. Shauna. Thank you very much, Natalie. And thank you, uh, Chairman Corker. Congratulations on a career here and uh, highlighting this issue. And uh, Ranking Member Menendez, thanks for inviting us today. I'm uh, really pleased to share the Solidarity Center's perspective on this issue and the global fight to end modern slavery. And from my written testimony, which I've submitted for the record, I'd like to highlight four key points. First, modern slavery takes place in the context of rising authoritarianism and the global crackdown on civic freedoms happening all over the world. Fundamentally, trafficking for labor exploitation is the result of the absence of human rights and effective governance and a culture of impunity. The failure of governments to protect worker rights in law or of employers to respect them in practice creates an environment where workers are vulnerable to exploitation, including debt bondage, forced labor, and human trafficking. Modern slavery happens in countries that restrict civic freedoms, including the right to form or join trade unions or other worker organizations. In short, modern slavery lives in the shadows when there is no one there to expose it. And the deck is increasingly stacked against workers when they try to stand up for themselves, expose this abuse, and fight back. 
Resurgent authoritarianism globally means that nearly half the world's population, 3.2 billion people, live in countries where civic space is closed or repressed. With authoritarianism comes weakened democratic institutions, including the courts and the press, and civil society sidelined by draconian legislation and overt repression by police and the military. It's no accident that of the 22 countries ranked as tier three in the State Department's 2018 tier placements, only one country, Belize, is considered free according to Freedom House. In Turkmenistan, for example, where state-sponsored forced labor in cotton production is an ongoing crime, activists trying to monitor and expose these atrocious practices have been harassed, threatened, and imprisoned. Among them, Gaspar Mataliev, a news reporter with Alternative Turkmenistan News. Mataliev was arrested in October 2016, two days after he reported on state-orchestrated forced labor of children and adults in the cotton harvest. He remains in jail. A couple of week, weeks ago, I visited Lesotho. In this very poor country, thousands of people find work in the garment factories that supply major American and international brands. But women workers also find something else. Male supervisors demanding sex in exchange for pay, promotions, or employment at all. Research and our firsthand experience with women in garment factories like these in Lesotho, where women are forced into transactional sex to gain or keep employment and where they have no remedy if they complain, is a strong indicator of forced labor. And when women cannot exercise their basic labor rights because they are routinely suppressed by factory owners with total impunity from the state, well, that's a democracy problem, too. Put simply, people need to be able to dissent and dissent freely and collectively if we want to end modern slavery. Second, the ongoing problem with forced labor also really needs to be seen in the context of the mass movement of people. An estimated 150 million people are migrant workers, and the number of refugees and internally displaced persons and asylum seekers uh, now tops 68 million people. In the context of rising authoritarianism, anti-immigrant rhetoric and accompanying anti-immigrant policy also run high. In our work around the world, the Solidarity Center has heard firsthand from migrant workers who fear reporting forced labor conditions because of the toxic anti-immigrant environment pervasive that they are experiencing. Moreover, closing pathways for humanitarian resettlement like refugee programs and narrowing grounds for asylum increase the chances that those fleeing violence and persecution will be forced to migrate through less safe channels exposing them to a heightened risk of trafficking and forced labor. For example, the Business and Human Rights Resource Center found severe abuses of Syrian refugees in Turkish garment supply chains, including forced and child labor. And at this moment, as we sit here meeting, the Thai government is actively punishing some of the brave Thai labor leaders who have stood up against modern slavery and against anti-migrant discrimination. It's our measured experience working in 60 countries over 200 years, or 200 years, 20 years, that, uh, that to address uh, refugee and migrant worker vulnerability to trafficking, we need to level the playing field when it comes to rights and enforcement of rights of people working in a country no matter who they are. When some people in a society are treated as lesser, 
then the idea that they can be exploited becomes more accepted, possible, and prevalent. Indeed, isn't that the notion that slavery was built on, that some people are lesser? Third, we need to change our expectations about what constitutes accountability to human rights in the private economy, especially in supply chains. We still do not see the kind of corporate leadership we need to eradicate modern slavery. Those factories I spoke of in Lesotho, those factories may be owned and operated by Chinese investors, but 100% of the buyers are international brands, and a great many of them are American companies. I'm not saying that these global companies sourcing there want these things to happen. I am saying that they accept virtually no responsibility for ensuring it doesn't happen. And we need to change that. We need to be reimagining the human rights obligations of companies across supply chains if we want to end this abuse. And this committee can do more on that, and we can talk about that. Fourth and finally, we need our own government to use a more comprehensive set of tools in its anti-trafficking toolkit. U.S. trade programs can effectively address trafficking for forced labor. Recently, the administration announced the suspension of trade preferences under the African Growth and Opportunities Act to Mauritania due to its utter failure to address hereditary slavery in that country, and we're hopeful that will help. But our trade agreements, all of them, can and should include binding obligations that reduce and try to eliminate the risk of trafficking for forced labor among our trade partners. The new US-Mexico-Canada agreement could include elimination of recruitment fees, a ban on passport confiscation, a requirement to disclose terms and conditions of employment, and equal rights for citizen, resident, and migrant workers. These provisions could help reduce trafficking for labor uh, exploitation and should be included and then enforced. As successive, successive administrations, too, have allowed the slow erosion of a focus on labor rights as part of US human rights advocacy and diplomacy around the world. For example, the role of labor officers in US embassies. This can't go on. Uh, we need their voices, their eyes and ears on the ground. Without diplomatic pressure and clear defense of human rights, uh, I fear that people will continue to not have the chance to live in the, uh, and work in the dignity that everyone deserves. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you both for some uh, very great testimony. Uh, Ms. Grant, um, I must tell you that uh, your story is, a, is a, a riveting example of how one person committed to an idea or an ideal and a cause and willing to f do something about it can create change. And it's really powerful. And I, I commend you for it. It's uh, exceptional. I, I don't have you on my iTunes list, uh, but I've looked you up while I'm here. What's your favorite song? Yes. Song of mine. Uh, probably a song called King of the World. King of the World. All right. Funny story is that President Obama told me that same thing. And then he invited me to sing for him, and I got to. So that was outside of this, maybe just a little notch higher in the cool department. But this is pretty Careful. special, too. <laughs> you're, now you're really being courageous. <laughs> but I admire you for it. Uh, I admire your work. It's, it's an exceptional, uh, exceptional story about the organization that you've helped create. So um, what do you find in the work uh, that has been uh, a challenge, uh, other than obviously raising the resources to reach more people, but what do you find challenging in the work that you're doing? Um, 
you know, and mostly, uh, for me personally, a big challenge is getting to people to believe it's actually happening. Mm. Um, I will never forget when I first was starting to talk about it, um, and this was in the church, right? I mean, I, I had like a, a pastor sit me down and say, I, I don't want you to talk about that. I, d I don't want you to speak about that. Um, because it was just a little bit too dirty and a little bit too uncomfortable. And that's a topic for another day about how far the church has fallen if we can't talk about the dirty and the uncomfortable. That's the very place we should be able to talk about it because the church is supposed to be a hospital where hurting people find help for what they need. Um, but that was, for me, the biggest hurdle was getting people to believe. Um, speaking with law enforcement, actually getting them to believe that trafficking was happening in their own communities. Um, it was a huge effort of the organization last year. They trained over a 1,000 police officers on how to recognize trafficking, how to handle a victim. And just the little bit that I heard of the testimony earlier, um, it is a huge problem for victims to be honest and to testify and to, and to feel like they're going to be protected. Um, in this country, the few victims I've had the opportunity to meet, um, they feel as though they're treated like the criminal, mm. oftentimes. That um, instead of being recognized as a victim, they are treated as a criminal. And um, there has to be something we can do to change that. <laughs> Um, I think uh, that as far as the organization, um, you know, they would say um, that some of the difficulties that they face um, would be in, um, you know, addressing slavery in the supply chain, and they have done that. They've created something called the Slavery Free Alliance, mm -hmm. where businesses can join it, um, and we have several now that have joined, one with employees of 42,000 people. Um, where they can recognize, okay, this is important. This is important, and we need to continue to make people aware of it. I, I see it every day, not like this. I see it in concerts where when people learn, I see their faces. When I tell that story, when I talk about the victims, I see the faces of the people sitting in that audience, how they start to cry, how they, they, they're aghast, they can't believe it, and then I see the rage. Something happened inside of them that says, not on my watch. Well, wait a second. It's amazing to me how I see when people learn about this issue, they become passionate about it because it's the kind of issue that if you have a heart beating on the inside of you, you can't, you can't turn away from. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you don't have notes, but you're doing a great job, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> you. Uh, uh, and I appreciate your recognition that very often the victim feels that they're the criminal. Mm -hmm. And we need to deal with that. Uh, uh, Ms. bader Bly, you covered a lot of uh, territory and uh, a lot of it, which uh, I think is very important. So let me just quickly, in the less than a minute that I have left, focus in on the supply chain question. How do we get, what incentives and or consequences do we get to have American companies engage in that? Because you mentioned in your testimony that corporate social responsibility doesn't seem to work uh, as a reality. And also on the question of uh, recruitment uh, fees, creating vulnerabilities of trafficking, if you could succinctly address those two. Sure, quickly on the, on the fees. I think the simple principle is that um, the idea of work is that I work and you pay me. I shouldn't have to pay to get a job. And unfortunately, around the world, people uh, pay uh, what are really business costs to get jobs, and they, they get indebted. They pay labor brokers that traffic them or take them legally around the world. They pay for visas. Uh, these are all uh, costs of doing business that employers should bear 
the burden of. When they don't, and the burden rests on uh, these very vulnerable and low-wage workers, they end up working six and eight months in our experience in countries like Saudi Arabia, where there are no other human rights available to anyone. Um, they work without essentially without pay, they work in modern slavery. Um, so I think, you know, first of all, we need to completely eliminate fees. You shouldn't have to pay to work. Um, and the, the second uh, point on uh, the voluntary corporate um, compliance issue. Look, I, it's, it's the 21st century, it's 2018. We can expect more from um, the corporate citizenship of our major um, American and international brands. We should be demanding uh, something more than voluntary corporate compliance. We want to see businesses actually step up and commit to uh, not just asking the question, do I have slavery in my supply chain, but actually working with civil society organizations on the ground that know the answer to that and committing to eliminating uh, that scourge by engaging civil society, including and especially the workers themselves. Look, you know, whether it's domestic workers, agricultural workers, uh, uh, garment workers, Workers know when there's forced labor in a factory because they see it, they're with each other, and they know what's happening. When workers can come together, have agency and collective voice, they can eradicate forced labor. We have seen it all over the world. We need businesses to recognize that workers are and their agency are part of the answer, and a core human right that is under attack globally around the world is the right to freedom of association and the right to have unions and collective bargaining. And that is a critical need in our uh, global diplomacy uh, in the fight against uh, slavery. Thank you. <clears throat> While these uh, two people have been greatly touched by what they've seen and are acting uh, in ways to solve the problem. We also have Gene Bader-Snyder with us today, who's running the Global Fund in Modern Slavery, who had a similar experience about 11 years ago and is now committed uh, herself uh, to this effort also. I just wanted to recognize her and, again, thank both of you for your testimony. Senator Rich. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you both for your, for your work and, um, and, uh, and strong uh, uh, testimony. Um, I, I think... Uh, Ms. Bader-Blau, you, your testimony about the problems uh, are, are, are well accepted. Uh, one of the things that struck me when I joined this committee about 10 years ago, I spent all my life in public service in various offices, but until I got to this committee, I, I really hadn't focused on the 200 countries in the world. I, I'm an American, I grew up here, uh, life was good for me. Uh, uh, I, I grew up somewhat poor, but you know, in America, everybody seems to get along pretty well, uh, uh, one way or another. When I started traveling, uh, I was just astounded at what I saw around the world. And and many of these countries are allies of ours, friends of ours, transactional partners of ours in various things. And then you, when you pull the curtain back, you look and and you're just astounded uh, at what you see. With eight billion people now on the planet. Uh, uh, th this is a problem that is, is pervasive, and the numbers are staggering. And uh, uh, I, I, I've listened carefully to all the suggestions that you have. And, and um, for instance, and, and please don't take this as criticism. These are difficult issues. Um, but the supply chain issue is, uh, is, a, is a great one to focus on. The difficulty with that is when you get a large corporation that the consumers can really put the screws to and say, look, if you don't do things right, we're not gonna buy your product. Problem is you turn on the internet and you can buy the product uh, from overseas and have it shipped in and it could have been made by slaves uh, for all you know. So these are 
These are really, really difficult problems. It, simply because it's difficult, uh, I don't want to discourage you. Uh, uh, we all need to redouble our efforts in that regard. And I think uh, y your work of, of educating um, Americans as to, the, as to what actually goes on out there, Ms. Grant, your, your uh, testimony in that regard is powerful, and you need to continue to, uh, to, to do that. Um, and, and Americans need to know this, because like I said, we, we, we all grew up so comfortably here. Mo the vast majority of Americans grew up comfortably. And uh, obviously not, mo most people think, well, you know, it could be better. Well, after you travel around the world, you, you come back here and you say, you know, you just kiss the ground because of, uh, of what we have here. And even, even countries that, uh, that we view as so civilized uh, uh, really uh, uh, all need work. And we need to, to keep the pressure up. And I look forward to partnering with my friends on the other side as we move forward on this issue. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and to the witnesses, I really appreciate your advocacy and your testimony and being with us today to share. I want to applaud the uh, leadership of this committee, uh, being on the Foreign Relations Committee for the last four years. I've watched this committee be very passionate and scrupulous about integrity in the trafficking in persons report. Um, there's often political efforts by administrations of, of both parties to try to cut a corner here or give somebody a break there to accomplish another objective, and the committee has stood very, very strong against any efforts to try to weaken the uh, rigorous analysis and criticism, if there should be criticism in those reports, and I applaud them. Uh, Ms. Grant, um, I'm particularly happy that you focused on the need for church organizations to be involved, and not just in the comfortable and easy, but in the uncomfortable. I think faith-based organizations do a lot of great work in this area, we were contacted by one last year, an interesting organization uh, called A21, that wanted to just put billboards at Dulles Airport and other airports because places that are international arrival zones are places where folks who are trafficked often, you know, hit land. And if there's something there that can offer them some assistance, they wanted to be able to do it. We were able to connect A21 with the airport's authority, and they have this uh, campaign, "Can You See Me?" that they're doing at Dulles and elsewhere to try to bring more public awareness. And this is a faith-based organization doing good work. So I, I applaud you and encourage you to continue to do that. I want to, um, as you, Ms. Butterblow, you talked about root causes, and I thought that was an interesting one. It seems to me that one that you didn't mention is subjugation of women. Um, if we're talking about sex trafficking or labor trafficking or other trafficking, women are not the only victims. There are men victims of sex trafficking. There are men victims of of labor trafficking, certainly, but it would seem to me, and I'm not an expert on this area, but it, it would seem to me that the, the subjugation of women is a key part of this. I was just looking at your written testimony on page seven, for example, our organization works on the eastern coast of Kenya where jobs are few and poverty is endemic, and many women migrate to Saudi Arabia for the purpose of good paying job as domestic help. An entire industry has been built to ship women overseas to clean and care for other people's families. Most have little choice but to leave. There's no other way to support their family and make a better life for their children. These women have told us of the trap set by labor brokers and employers. Four million of the globally enslaved working people each year, as you point out, are in the doing domestic work. And so I think that there's a whole aspect of the trafficking problem, of the slavery problem, that is directly related to second-class status of women and subjugation of women. And I guess I'd like to hear you talk about that in the labor uh, slavery side. Is it 
uh, overwhelmingly or predominantly women. I know certainly there are men victims as well, but I'm curious. Thank you. In the in the um, the majority of um, women who migrate abroad specifically for employment globally um, actually are involved in some form of uh, service sector work, particularly in, and especially domestic work. And um, you know, people uh, often I I like to say that in fact women when they travel abroad for work, especially into domestic work, are often trading you know, one patriarchy they faced at home for another when they arrive at work. They absolutely face discrimination from labor brokers who will only help them get jobs that are seen as female, first of all. So there's discrimination on the recruitment side, including in Mexico in our H2 uh, programs mm -hmm. into the United States. Discrimination happens there. Uh, when they arrive to work in um, a place like the Gulf countries, uh, we're talking about um, countries that under law discriminate against women in general, citizens or migrants, and then migrant workers facing an additional burden of discrimination under the law. They do not have equal rights to citizens. Um, and, at, and in domestic work, uh, women are often um, kept in homes, locked, made to sleep in um, closets on the kitchen floor. Uh, very often we find that um, and in fact, I was just in a meeting with a woman from Jamaica who became a domestic worker when she was 14 years old, uh, who was not allowed to eat most of the day um, by her employer. They are treated um, as, uh, as, as slaves and uh, discriminated against specifically based are, on their gender. I mean, some are treated worse than the family pet is treated. And yeah. as you talk about it, there's sort of a gray zone between sex slavery and labor slavery people come into situations where they then are forced to have sex to keep their job or to get a promotion. And so there, there, there isn't a clear bright line in some cases between sex slavery or labor slavery. No, and I would urge the, the members of the committee and your conversations later about Saudi Arabia and ongoing to really um, take advantage of the spotlight on Saudi Arabia to highlight the extreme problem of trafficking and forced labor in that country. It's um, brutal. It isn't just people being beheaded, it's virtually the entire migrant low-wage workforce is in some spectrum of trafficking in Saudi Arabia, and they need to be held accountable for that. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Before turning to Senator Markey uh, for the first panel in particular, the record will remain open until Monday's close of business. Uh, I know this is not the type of topic where there's going to be any mischief, mischief. so Senator Markey. Uh, thank you. Thank I'm, you, I'm going to actually calls you, if you will, to be chairman and adjourn the meeting when you finish, and that I do need to get down uh, early for this other meeting. I want to thank our witnesses for their inspirational service and testimony. And uh, with that, thank you. Chairman Markey, thank I, I, you. And I, I, I thank please, you. Please, if you don't mind, no arms agreements or anything like that <laughs> while we're gone. So uh, <laughs> I, we, that's next year. Um, the the uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your service too. I very much appreciate it. And again, he, the the chairman has to. Uh, work on the question of actually human rights in Yemen and those issues as well, which is uh, coming up in another 15 minutes or so. Uh, thank you both so much for your incredible leadership uh, on these issues, um, what you've done to help to spotlight it. Just very powerful, powerful testimony today. Thank you. Mr. Beta Blau, um, I know that Solidarity actually works on um, issues in Burma trafficking issues there. So I'd like to just ask you a question. Perhaps you could um, lay out what you think would be the right thing for our government to do. <clears throat> in Burma, a year after 
the Burmese military's brutal operations led to nearly one million people being displaced in Bangladesh, there is no relief in sight for the Rohingya. Compounding the humanitarian crisis in Bangladesh uh, is the threat of human trafficking of Rohingya refugees. The International Organization for Migration as well as Refugees International reported in August that thousands of Rohingya refugees were at risk of falling prey to human traffickers who exploit them sexually uh, and for forced labor. The non-governmental organization Fortify Rights has highlighted how Rohingya leaving by boat to other Southeast Asian countries to escape their current predicament could be victims of trafficking networks, similar to 2015 when Rohingya victims of trafficking were forcefully detained, abused, and sometimes buried in Thailand or Malaysia. The Burmese Navy intercepted two boats with 100 Rohingya refugees in the last few days. Do you agree with those assessments? And do you think that the administration is doing enough in order to uh, deal with this issue? Uh, do you think that they are sufficiently in conversation with the Burmese and the Bangladeshis uh, in order to make sure uh, that we fight hard on these trafficking issues in this region? So um, when people are found in mass graves who were refugees, who were uh, forced to work without pay in a place like Thailand, the answer to your question is no, we're not doing enough. When people are trafficked um, and discriminated against based on their religion and their ethnicity and their refugee status in Bangladesh because they're Rohingya um, or in, in Thailand or in Malaysia, no, we're not doing enough. Uh, it needs to be a full-time focus on the, um, the, this is where we really see the nexus between racism and discrimination against migrants and refugees and closing civic space. These are all countries I just mentioned that have um, really restricted rights environments. And so not only are people uh, migrants that are discriminated against, there aren't even, there isn't really even the civic space for them to form organizations and fight back. So no, we're not doing enough. Okay, and what would you say to the administration right now? Give them, give them their work assignment. Oh, I don't know. I have the time. Um, I, would st I would start by saying that um, fundamentally labor rights um, need to be advanced in our diplomacy and protected in every single country. That includes Malaysia. I'm talking about for Rohingya, yeah, uh, okay. Malaysia, Thailand, and Bangladesh. That needs to be a full-time focus of our diplomacy and prioritized because that's where we're seeing the most exploitation is in forced labor of their of migration. So they need to focus on that, and I think we need to be more aggressive with our trade tools. We have um, GSP in these countries. We have other trade tools that we can use that we can actually suspend in order to um, to make the point that we are prioritizing the human rights of migrants and refugees. Beautiful, thank you. Um, I can't tell you how much we all appreciate uh, what you do every single day. It won't be forgotten. You've made an imprint on the committee uh, and given us an agenda uh, for what we should be working on with intense, in, in, intensity increased on the part of each one of us on the committee. Uh, we thank you both for uh, your testimony. And with that, this hearing is adjourned. <laughs>